Planet Innovation. 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 Do you know how your wine got into its bottle? And how much impact it has on the environment? Maybe not, right? If you drink wine, you probably think about rolling hills and lush landscapes. But the process to make wine actually has a large environmental impact. From the water usage to the pesticides, to the transportation of the bottles, the footprint is no joke. One glass of wine costs 16 gallons of water, equal to the suggested amount of drinking water you need for 32 days. And every year, 800 million gallons of wine are consumed in the United States. So what can be done to address these issues? Actually, a lot. In this episode, we speak to an economist, a wine shop owner, and a winemaker on some sustainable alternatives such as organic and biodynamic wine, and even wine made without grapes. The notion of natural is constantly changing, right? The way that we manufacture food, any kind of food today, even if it's done in sort of the most quote-unquote traditional and old-school way, looks very different from how agriculture was done 10,000 years ago. Natural is a moving, is a constantly moving target. It always will be. This is Planet Innovation. I'm your host, Maggie Delmas. Let's get to it. You're familiar with organic. It's everywhere and it's trendy. But what about organic wine? Oh, organic wine. Oh, yes, I have heard of it. Ah, uh, yeah. I haven't. Yes, but I'm not taking alcoholic drinks, so I never tried that, but I have heard about it, yes. No. I've actually drank organic wine. It was kind of gross. Organic wine? No. No, but I'm not surprised that it exists. Would you buy organic wine? I've not. I don't think I've sought it out at all. If it wasn't over $10. I would buy it, yeah. I haven't, though. Well, I mean, I don't buy organic foods to begin with, so probably not. I would if it was cheap. Probably, yeah. It depends. If it was cheap, yeah. I'll buy any cheap wine. We spoke to a leading winemaker in organic practices to get more insights. We did this interview on the phone, so the audio is not the best quality, but please bear with us. I'm uh, John Williams, and I'm owner and winemaker of Rockleaf Winery. John has been farming organically for 30 years. So can you describe uh, for us a little bit what these practices look like? Yeah, you know, I think that there's a little misconception about what organic farming is all about. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people think it's about not using chemicals or or you know, allowing insects to come in or living with nature or, or hugging trees or whatever, you know, kind of our father's uh, organics, you know, the, uh, more of a hippie sort of culture. What in organic farming is indeed is, is, is very simply a, a natural form of soil fertility by returning organic matter to the soil, remaining the soil alive and the healthy living soil produces healthy living plants. Like a healthy diet would uh, uh, essentially produce a healthy human. And the principle is a healthy plant naturally resists pests and disease. So organic farming isn't so much about not using chemicals as not needing chemicals. Interesting perspective. Um, so you make the, the connection between um, organic practices and quality. So tell, can you tell me more about how this works? Why would you, would you uh, think there's a link? Well, uh, you know, the greatest wines in the world, uh, you know, express three things, balance, 
and restraint and respect for this idea of sense of place, or the French call it terroir, the idea that wine is very connected to the place that it's grown. And to do this, the vine needs to be deeply rooted. It needs to get its water and, and, and minerals and everything from that place. And this uh, uh, makes for a much healthier situation and a much more flavorful wine. It's out there trying to get its fruit in perfect balance so er, uh, birds and other animals will eat those grapes and spread its seed, right? That's its mission in life. And so balance in wine is, is predicated upon the idea that the vine has enough intelligence to bring its fruit into balance for the express purpose of, of spreading its seed and having a, a, a linking that natural intelligence in the grapevine to uh, this understanding uh, produces a wine that's naturally in balance and, and uh, makes a, a much more flavorful uh, wine. In fact, this is consistent with research we've done at UCLA that confirms the link between organic practices and quality. We looked at wine ratings by experts such as the Wine Spectator, the Wine Enthusiast, and Robert Parker, and found that these experts tend to provide better ratings for wines made with organic grapes. We studied 74,000 wines in California and found that green wines got about four points more than conventional wines on a rating scale from 1 to 100. Although organic wine scores higher, it is not advertised as much by wineries. Many wineries go through the pain of eco-certification, but few actually label it on their bottles. Why is that so? This leads us to what we call the organic wine puzzle. Experts and winemakers make the link between organic practices and quality, but don't want to talk about it. What is missing from the puzzle is the consumer's perspective on green wine. We spoke to my co-author, Neil Lesson, to get the consumer perspective. So I am an economist. I did a lot of research on why do people engage in green, uh, voluntary green behavior. So we had this question of actually how do people think about eco-wines um, and eco-labeled wines? Uh, what are the perceptions? So what we did was... We did an experiment to see what wine people would buy based only on the label. We conducted a survey in which participants had to choose a bottle of Cabernet from four options. The bottles had different prices ranging from $7 to $29 and were from two different regions in California, Napa and Lodi. Some bottles had the eco-label organic, some others had the label made with organic grapes, and others did not. Over 800 people responded to the survey, and we found... At lower prices, people were more likely to choose the organic wine. And particularly at lower prices in the lower quality region, they were more likely to pick the organic wine. But when you went to higher prices in the higher quality region, they were more likely to pick a conventional wine. So our interpretation of the findings was that uh, people have a preference for uh, organic wines or eco-labeled wines, but they also worry about quality. And so as the price goes up, they're not sure if they're getting the same quality and they're not willing to pay for it. So they think it's a, a lower quality good and they're not willing to buy it. They prefer something else uh, because they perhaps think that the markup is uh, it's expensive just because it's organic, not because it's good. If wine made with organic grapes is of better quality, why not label the organic practices on the wine bottles? This is John from Frog's Leap again. Well, 
Um, you know, 30 years ago, of course, there was no positive connection between organic farming and quality. In fact, it was quite the opposite, you know. Uh, and uh, so, you know, we've been doing this so long that uh, we forgot, essentially, to market uh, ourselves as sustainable and organic. And quite honestly, we just don't consider it a marketing thing. We consider it a, a farming practice that makes better quality wine. And, you know, and, and I'm also, as a consumer, getting a little... So many things are marketed so much all the time that aren't authentic that it starts to lose its value. And you know, I I, I just uh, it's just not what we we do. We're just trying to make great wine. Frog's Leap doesn't actually have the label made with organically grown grapes on their bottles. So I asked John why. We all know the term greenwashing, and there's plenty of that going on. There's about a million now different things you can sign up and. You can be this kind of green farmer or that kind of green business or so on. And there's, a, you know, so many labels you can put on your thing, 90% of which don't seem to mean anything, that I think eventually people just get tired of that and they tone out. And the one thing you really want is a great glass of wine. It's nice to find out that it's farmed with the kind of values that we, we believe in. And pe when people find that out, they're thrilled and they're wonderful and they become loyal consumers. So that's we, we're glad when they find out. Just we don't want to cram it down their throats, essentially. Some have called you, I've seen that, John, the hippie farmer. Do you like that? <laughs> well, that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. We don't want to be categorized as, as being this way or that way. What what I want is, wow, that's frog's leaf, unbelievable wines, really tasty. They age. They're so beautiful. They smell like the place they come from. They taste. They go so well with my food. You know, that's what we want to be known for. So besides organic farming, John also uses dry farm techniques. Dry farming is farming without irrigation. It is done through a system of tillage and surface protection, which conserves the moisture in the soil from the rainy season. He says it produces sweeter, denser fruit and saves frog's leap 16,000 gallons of water per acre, compared to other wineries that do light irrigation in Napa. So what led John to dry farm? Well, I think some perspective is needed. First of all, you need to know that all grapes in Napa were grown without irrigation for more than 100 years. All the great and fundamental wines that established the reputation of the Napa Valley were from vineyards that were not irrigated. So this is not something new. Uh, irrigation was introduced in 1976, became popular in the 80s, more or less de rigueur in the 90s, and now um, literally people think they can't farm without irrigation. It's also interesting to know that uh, irrigation of grapevines is not legal in the EU, so all the great other countries that produce wines uh, that we admire from Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Portugal, um, all uh, farm without irrigation. It's... Um, Irrigation is not helpful to the vines, and it does not produce a better wine. So we don't understand why more people don't farm without irrigation. So you think the industry is changing their attitudes? Um, I mean, you've seen kind of a development of these practices in Napa? Well, um, you know, I, 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 I just keep thinking of this thing as, as once we peel one layer of the onion with respect to this, then... You have to start looking at it's, it's one thing to have healthy vineyards, but where do your farm workers live? It's mm -hmm. you know where does your water come from? Where's your where, where are you getting your power? So all these things lead to deeper and deeper questions that I think are what modern businesses <clears throat> and not just 
uh, farming business is not just the wine industry. It's what all businesses are going to have to ask because these are going to become the rate limiting steps in, in, in successful business practices. And so I think those of us, um, I, I think anyone who becomes more and more aware of the value of sustainable business and practices, in our case, farming practices, um, is going to gain an advantage ultimately. So why not get on the train now? We've been talking about growing grapes organically. But are the grapes really necessary? In fact, there are innovative companies like Eva Winery who are making wine without the vine. Yes, that's right, wine made without grapes. How is this possible? Here is Alec Lee, the CEO of Eva Winery. So what uh, led you to Ava Winery and the idea of wines without vines? The idea started about three years ago. Um, my, my co-founder was actually on a Napa Valley winery trip and he stumbled across this very famous wine that he, that he hadn't heard of at the time, but it was a 1973 Chateau Montalena Chardonnay, um, which... For anybody who doesn't know that reference, uh, won a competition that later came to be known uh, as the Judgment of Paris. He came across this bottle. Um, there are only a handful of them left, and it was behind this plexiglass case. It wasn't for sale. You can really only find them at auction now. And as enamored as he was with the story behind this bottle and how you can pretty much only find them for well over $10,000 a piece now, he got to thinking, well, if you take away all the history and the marketing and all of this stuff, the reality is that this is a uh, glass bottle with mostly water, some alcohol, some sugars, acids, uh, various aroma and flavor molecules. And there's really nothing in this bottle that isn't a molecule that can be identified and quantified. And if we could scan or map each one of these components and recombine them in exactly the right proportions, then we should be able to experience this product again for, for ourselves and share it with others. We've realized what people are more interested in uh, rather than counterfeits is things that are novel and new, right? Things that capture really the prototypical, the essence of really great products that they love and sort of picks and chooses the whether it's the astringency or the uh, the aroma notes or you know the, the sharpness of the alcohol. There, there's so many different parameters by which we can then select from different products and really optimize on our own. So it's like making a copy of a photo, picking up every single pixel, or in this case, the molecular component. You could even tweak and edit it before you print out the final product. We then source each of these components. And this is really where the environmental angle comes in because the basic thesis is that there isn't any thing, any molecule in wine or, or really in most other foods or beverages that are unique to those products. You find basically all of these things elsewhere in nature too. And so the question simply becomes, where can I most efficiently source each one of these individual components in nature. Um, so for example, uh, grapes are uh, an extremely high maintenance, fastidious, relatively slow growing plant. Um, and they produce sugar. 
uh, and, and that sugar gets converted into alcohol during the fermentation process. But many other plants produce sugar and, and starches that can be converted to alcohol, right? Grains do it much more efficiently, it turns out. And so we can get alcohol, the exact same molecule that you'd find in a wine, but we can get it from grain. Um, we can get all sorts of aroma and flavor molecules and amino acids from various yeasts and uh, fruits and vegetables, each one of them selected for its efficiency, and then combined the cumulative impact in terms of uh, water reduction, in terms of uh, resource usage, uh, is dramatic. There is grain alcohol in our product, for example, but I would not think of this as well, instead of fermenting grape juice, what we do is we throw grains and different fruits and vegetables into a vat and then throw some yeast and then ferment them. There's actually no fermentation process in this whatsoever. Uh, the entire process takes you know, a few hours, realistically, uh, from, from beginning to end, regardless of how aged the original quote-unquote product was. So there is fermentation somewhere down uh, upstream of us, but what we use is the pure, completely distilled, completely pure alcohol that comes from the grain. We don't actually handle grain ourselves. Ultimately, this process is much cleaner, gives you a cleaner product at the end of the day, uh, is more efficient, and gives you a product that doesn't have anything in it that's not normally found in the traditional product. So what kind of product is Ava Winery making? We have a product that we are launching that is derived entirely from natural components. The mechanism by which we produce that product is very different from what people have seen before, um, but it is not synthetic in the uh, colloquial understanding of that term. If you don't use the word synthetically, what word do you use instead? We're really working with the term note by note. Environmentally, how does this note-by-note note process compare to the traditional winemaking process? Typically, depending on where it's grown, uh, wine requires somewhere between 300 and 1,000 liters of water per liter of wine that is made. Our product will require somewhere on the order of about 13 liters of water per liter of, uh, per, per liter of product. The vast majority of the savings doesn't come from any of the hundreds of you know the many hundreds of components that we use. It primarily comes from alcohol. The reality is that grapes, like I said before, are an extremely inefficient crop, but grain is not. So, how does this process compare to the dry farming techniques? We, we I mean, we we are all on the same page that a great deal of irrigated water is uh, simply wasted to evaporation. And with really good farming techniques, we can dramatically reduce the water and, and resource impact of traditional farming. Uh, but the reality is that these plants transpire quite a bit of water through their leaves, and there's really only so much you can do to manipulate the, uh, the physical parameters around the grape before you start dealing with the biological limitations of that plant. And those are simply, you can only get so many calories per acre. Um, that is the primary savings uh, that, that we're talking about. So, so even with some of these really great um, irrigation techniques, you're really not seeing projections to go below 100 liters of water per liter of wine. Um, 
you know, that, that might change over time with, with additional uh, work in this space, but you're not going to see fundamental shifts in it. Let me be clear, though. Uh, water is not the only metric by which I think our process has merit. Uh, it, it's, simply, uh, it's simply one. If, you're, if you have to uh, manufacture a product in France and age it for, in some cases, many years, um, and then transport it by ship to the United States and then truck it around the country, you have a lot of CO2 usage that, that comes with that. Um, our process is pretty capital light in terms of the equipment that's required for its manufacture. And so we have the luxury of being able to set up relatively small, more local operations pretty much anywhere in the world. And we're just not limited by geography the way that wine is. Um, another one is pesticides. So the benefits that Alec has listed are less water use, less CO2 emissions from transportation, and no use of pesticides. But aren't organic practices solving at least the pesticide part of the problem? Yeah, so, so you know, I, I think the organic conversation is a very interesting, separate one to have. Um, if you ask most consumers why they buy organic products, the vast majority of them say it's because of the pesticides. What they aren't aware of is the fact that organic crops still use pesticides, in some cases up to seven times more pesticide than traditional farming. They're just using quote-unquote organic pesticide. It just has to be certified organic. It is chemically different, but in some cases, many of these components are actually worse for the environment, worse for fish. Um, and, and so even if on a gram-for-gram gram basis, the pesticides aren't as bad, farmers have to dump up to seven times more to get the same effect. So realistically, you're not actually doing that much for the environment by switching to organic as far as pesticides are concerned. The reality is also you're not doing that much for the environment in general with organic because the crop yields are a lot lower, so you have to farm a lot more, you waste a lot more resources, CO2, etc. But those things aren't sexy, right? People don't want to people want to feel good about the buying choices that they're making and organic makes them feel good. They don't really want to do a deep dive into what organic constitutes. And and the reason why I sort of get into that and, and I think this is really really important is that People typically look at the technology that we're working on, you know, the, the, and pejoratively label it as synthetic, and they put it on a spectrum, right? They put our, ours is on, the, on one end of the spectrum, and organic, biodynamic, you know, all, all, these, all these techniques are uh, whole ingredient, all of that stuff is on the other end of the spectrum. But I think of it as a circle. Those two ends come together, and they come together in this sense. What people really care about with organic is that it is clean, right? That it is free of pesticide, that it is free of uh, various soil contaminants, right? That it, uh, that it is better for the environment um, and that it is healthier, right? The truth is that we deliver on the things that organic consumers care about. We just don't deliver on in a way that they're traditionally familiar with. And so ultimately that's, you know, that's a communication challenge for us. That's, that's a marketing challenge. 
So wine without the vines, apparently, is just as good, if not better, than organic. But isn't growing grapes key to the story and marketing of wine? We talked with Ryan, the co-owner of Bar and Garden in Los Angeles, for his insight. I mean, people is like the storytelling. I always say that, you know, if you have a, I mean, there's $15 bottles and there's $500 bottles. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're just grape juice in a, you know, that's been fermented. So there has to be more to, you know, what, what you're selling than, than just that, you know, because, uh, you know, I think that a lot of times, you know, the, the quality different or the flavor difference isn't that great. So, you know, there has to be something more romantic. And, and I mean, to think that somebody's willing to pay, you know, $50 for, a, you know, beverage of fermented grapes, there has to be a heck of a lot more than just some fermented grapes in there. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of romanticism around wine. And that's what keeps us, that's what keeps us in the business, you know, and, and, and keeps us wanting to do it. With this new perspective, wine made without grapes might seem a bit unromantic to consumers. But what is Alex's approach to get consumers on board with Eva Winery's innovative winemaking practice? If we're just talking about the average consumer, I think you know two things are interesting. One is people are already consuming products like this. They've been doing it for decades. Um, soda is effectively a quote-unquote synthetic product, right? Soda is not juice from some fruit. Um, it is a manufactured product that is a combination of sugar and, and all sorts of things. Consumers are perfectly happy and have been for decades to drink a type of beverage like soda, whether or not soda itself is good. It is also uh, a great example with vanilla. So, you know, vanilla is extremely difficult to grow. It can only be grown in a handful of regions of the world. We can make artificial vanilla. And we can make it at a hundredth of the price of traditional vanilla. And so today, 99% of the vanilla that is consumed globally does not come from vanilla beans. It is chemically synthesized in some way. And so we have two choices as a society, right? One is we say, look, we're not going to tolerate anything artificial, even if it gives us environmental and taste benefits. And so therefore, we limit access to high-quality products only to those who can afford them. Or we say, look, there's really no ob scientifically objective reason to reject these things. Let's make them available to, to people. And, and the, the other component of it is more from the connoisseur angle, thinking about what people generally care about with wine. You know, we get this question a lot of, well, look, there's no sense of place in your product. There's no terroir. So what's the story here? So our story might not be about the rolling hills of the vineyard, but our story is about the people in our, uh, in our lab and, and in our kitchens who care very, very deeply about the product that they're making for people. They care very deeply about identifying and understanding each of those individual ingredients that goes into those products, right? They care very deeply about where those things comes from and the sustainability of those things, right? There's a story to be told in how this is crafted. It just doesn't sound like the story that people are used to, but we're finding that consumers aren't less interested in it. You know, it's, it's a very new thing to, to talk about. Well, whether romantic or not, 
Alec assures us the taste of note-by-note -note wine is the same quality, if not even better, than conventional wine, verified by third-party experts and blind tasting. I think what we really want to understand is how do we get widespread consumer adoption um, of the idea that engineered food is not inferior to quote-unquote traditional or natural food. There's been a long-standing sentiment that if you engineer a food, it is going to be inferior in quality to the quote-unquote whole or natural or traditional counterpart. And we need to break that in the short term because it is not true. Um, or it doesn't have to be true. We want to show that it can be done well and responsibly. That's our primary short-term challenge. Uh, and then after that, you know, we can talk about the Star Trek replicator of food. In this episode of Green Wine, we explore sustainable alternatives to traditional winemaking. We also introduce the concept of wine made without vines. With Eva's novel process, what will be the narrative associated with each bottle of wine? Will this technological approach revolutionize the wine industry? Is this the future? What are your thoughts? Please send your comments to our website, planetinnovation.eco. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And please take a few seconds to give us five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Your rating will make a big difference. This podcast is made possible by contributions from Natalie Ballesteros, Jacob Dahan, Sophia Garrick, Shuta Kenmochi, Alisa Kwan, Evelyn Shu, and Ran Taho. See you next time.